This is the Secrets of Attorney Marketing You're Podcast listening to the from Future Speakeasy Tech Health Marketing. Podcast with Discover Richard how to enhance your reputation as an attorney and I never realize the obvious that we all have medical issues. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and post a review that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. So you're with Harvard Medical School, but you tend to work what in the Massachusetts General Hospital in a clinical setting, and then you're doing research at Harvard as well? No. Um, the way um, Harvard Medical School is set up is that is that people have academic appointments in, in a lot of different um, settings around the Boston area, um, and most of them are in hospitals. And um, it has... There are people do a variety of things from clinical work as physicians or psychologists to um, research. And I'm entirely doing research uh, in this setting um, mm. and am supported entirely by grants from the NIMH. And um, um, I'm in a um, department or in a, not a department, but a division that is based off campus in Charlestown, Mass. Um, called the um, MGH East, or um, we share the building with the Martino Center for Biomedical Imaging. And um, the, there are lots of people here who uh, wear two hats, um, as both as physicians, psychiatrists. Um, actually, there's a whole number of different departments here, cardiology, okay. um, you know, all kinds of things. But but the um, psychiatry department has a number of people who do psychiatric neuroimaging, and that's what I do. Um, we look at uh, sleep and anxiety disorders um, using both sleep um, research tools like polysomnography and um, looking at the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging. All right, so you're studying what, what happens to people's sleep that have anxiety disorders? Yeah. Um, the, the sort of thrust of what we do is in, in the other direction, which is how does sleep disturbance in the long run increase the risk of developing anxiety disorders? So, for example, one of our studies looks at people across the whole spectrum of responses to a psychological trauma. Mm. And we're looking both at their sleep and also at their response, their brain response and their behavioral response to a set of um, emotional memory experiments called fear conditioning and uh, fear extinction. 
and we look at how um, people sleep with different degrees of um, symptoms following a traumatic experience. Mm. So we we both study people who have PTSD and also people who are have been entirely resilient following a, a trauma. Yeah, I know. Just you know, anecdotally myself, if uh, something's really bothering me, some of the things that may happen is I may dream dream about it endlessly. Or um, what happens more often is I'll sleep, but I wake up earlier than I want to, and I can't get back to sleep. And if I get to a yeah. certain level of wakefulness, then the bad thought comes back into my mind, and that kills my sleep. That's the end. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, that that's often um, how a sleep disturbance following a trauma begins is is it's actually perfectly normal for people to be um, a bit hyper aroused and, and sleepless after a traumatic event. Um, but if that persists and becomes insomnia um, and particularly if nightmares start to intrude, um, then a person is in gr at greater risk of, of um, developing um, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, you know, in a more, you know, um, typical way of, of having hypervigilance during the day and avoiding reminders of the trauma and possibly having nightmares or flashbacks um, and um, having increasing difficulty sleeping. It sort of becomes a vicious circle. So besides the, uh, the mental manifestations, what about the physiologic manifestations of uh, PTSD uh, you know, on the, what, what happens to the sleep itself is, um, is there a lot less REM sleep and a lot more deep sleep or vice versa? Like what, what happens uh, on the physical level? Well, when people have um, done a meta-analysis of, you know, all the different studies, there are many studies on sleep and PTSD in comparison to um, either people who have never experienced a trauma or people who have been exposed to trauma but didn't develop PTSD, um, the, the difference that this um, meta-analysis found was that those who have PTSD have less slow-wave sleep, which is the deepest stage of non-REM sleep. They have more of stage one non-REM sleep, which is the lightest stage of non-REM sleep. So in other words, they're not sleeping as deeply. And they have more eye movements during REM sleep, which is indicative of their brain being highly active um, and aroused during their REM sleep. And what um, may lead to PTSD is a disturbance of REM that happens right after a trauma. Um, and it's been studied um, uh, by Thomas Melman, um, has studied people um, in the month or so following a traumatic event and found that those uh, whose REM sleep becomes fragmented and shortened um, are the ones who are most likely to go on to develop PTSD. Um, when, once they have PTSD, that, that is not necessarily the case that their REM is fragmented, but they do notice that their eyes move more um, during REM sleep. And we think that indicates sort of a, a increased arousal of the brain 
um, during those REM sleep periods. And that could be um, the, the condition that nightmares arise out of um, in, in the case of REM nightmares. So what's your goal is just to understand what's going on or to create an intervention or a therapy or a treatment? Well, we, we look at both, but our, our main um, interest right now, um, and largely because the field is, is very young and, you know, we really don't know that much about how sleep contributes to, we know that sleep contributes to memory consolidation, uh, memory integration, um, to emotion, emotional memory um, consolidation, in other words, making memories that are initially um, weak and transient um, more stable and memorable. Um, we know that sleep does that, but as far as exactly how sleep uh, regulates our emotions, we, we highly suspect that it does because you know many experiments have shown that 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 a good night of sleep. Um, does reduce reactivity and people who are sleep deprived show greater reactivity. Um, but the, the basic science of sleep and emotion is, is really in its infancy. Um, what we study is what, how poor sleep may lead to um, uh, emotional disturbance. And we, we look at that by introducing um, types of memory that can either be disturbing, like fear conditioning. We actually teach people to fear a certain um, um, stimulus using an electric shock. And it sounds absolutely horrible, but it's it, <laughs> not. It's um, they, they, um, they pick their own level of shock and they pick a level that's highly annoying, but not painful. And we let them adjust it up and down until they've, they've decided on, you know, something that they really don't enjoy at all, but, but it's not painful. Um, and then we put them in the magnet and we teach them that following a certain color, um, uh, in a uh, particular, uh, environment, they are likely to receive a shock. It's not a hundred percent, but they're likely to. And so we then see activation of the parts of the brain that are, um, um, related to learning that kind of associative fear. Like if, for example, you were walking down a dark street and, and a you were attacked by a dog, you might be fearful of the dark. Um, after that, you've associated the dark with the dog's attack. And mm. it's, a, it's an experimental model of that. And the next thing that we do is we do something called fear extinction. And fear extinction is um, something that's been known about for a long time. Pavlov, in fact, discovered both fear conditioning and fear extinction. And, um, what fear extinction does is it presents the thing that a person has been, has learned to be afraid of over and over again without any of the um, uh, unpleasant consequences. Mm. And what happens is that the reaction to that decreases um, the more times it's presented. We look at skin conductance response in addition to the, um, the activation of certain parts of the brain, like the amygdala, which are known to activate when a person becomes um, fearful or anticip anticipating something fearful. Um, and 
the interesting thing about extinction is that it's a new memory. It's not a erasure of fear. It doesn't, you know, remove fear. What it does is it creates a new inhibitory memory that the next time one encounters the um, the conditioned reminder of something to be feared, those two processes, those two memories sort of fight it out, the um, hmm. uh, fear memory and the extinction memory. And Interesting. And that is sort of a model of two different things. One of how people who develop PTSD uh, become triggered, so to speak, by reminders of the trauma. So somebody who, for example, was in a terrible car accident and there was lots of gasoline spilled, they might react to the smell of gasoline. Um, and if they develop PTSD, the smell of gasoline might trigger flashbacks and nightmares and and something that they would avoid. They might stop driving um, and that sort of thing. Hmm. Extinction is something that people who are resilient to um, having been traumatized, so they sort of acquire that in the course of everyday life. Somebody is is um, has been in an accident and they will smell gasoline the next time they're filling up their car and nothing terrible happens as a result of that. And so after a while that, that fear goes away. That's sort of the normal process of overcoming fear. But what what is not obvious just to common sense is that that actually is a new memory that competes and inhibits the fear memory. There have been a number of very um, ingenious experiments over time that have shown that that fear memory remains there. Um, one can change the context in which a fearful cue is presented and the fear will come back. Or somebody can, can have a very strong reminder of the trauma and the next time they encounter the cue, um, it will come back. So um, the two two memories are are existing there and the other thing that it's a model of is exposure therapy which is the um, sort of gold standard for treating anxiety disorders from PTSD um, to which is no longer technically considered an anxiety disorder it has its own category now but um, it's similar and also anxiety disorders such as social phobia, um, fear of heights, fear of spiders, obsessive compulsive disorder where people avoid certain things. Extinction is, is the model for exposure therapy and what is done during exposure therapy is that a person is exposed mm. to the thing that they would ordinarily avoid. Right. Uh, they become anxious and in the process of encountering it, becoming anxious, and then having nothing bad happen, they start to develop these extinction memories, um, which then um, hopefully will be strengthened by um, additional experience, and they learn to um, overcome their fear is, is subjectively how they would experience it. But in fact, what's happening is that they're developing a memory that is effective at competing. You know, the memory that, um, for example, gasoline means crash gets replaced by gasoline no longer means crash. 
Right. I got you. What about um, memories that, you know, are so painful or so traumatizing that, you know, you really can't repeat the experience or the person just won't let you, or it's, you know, again, they're so traumatizing. Is there another way to do this or can you, are there ways you can give them situations that are similar, but not exact and still create a memory that will wipe away the bad one? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, there are many different ways to treat, um, for example, PTSD. Um, The one that is based on extinction is called exposure therapy or prolonged exposure therapy. And what the person does is, is imagine the um, event or in some cases um, present themselves with a reminder of the event. Now, for some people that has to be done very, very slowly and very carefully. Um, You don't want to re-traumatize them. And in a sense, some of the flashbacks of, of, or nightmares of PTSD are in a sense re-traumatization and they will end up strengthening the, the avoidance behavior. Um, now, for people who literally cannot tolerate that, there are other types of treatment. One is called cognitive processing therapy, which um, is a lot more about giving meaning to the event and um, um, integrating it more in in the person's overall life story. Um, and that isn't involved with with confronting them with the pretty good success as well. But for things like obsessive compulsive disorder or social anxiety disorder, the exposure and and preventing a response to that exposure is really the gold standard and is the most ex- effective type of therapy. Is there a way where you can uh, catch someone early in their exposure to a bad event? And is it okay? So let's say I had something really bad happen to me. I was like kidnapped and I don't know, you know, chained up or something and beaten. And it happened a week ago versus like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Is it easier to intervene and help me to overcome if it was recent versus a long time ago? You know, uh, yeah. Well, there there are um, people who are working on just that. And um, for example, um, an investigator, Barbara Rothbaum, at um, uh, Emory University has been looking into uh, very early um, treatment of people who have undergone uh, traumatic event and sometimes using the same types of techniques, exposure and, and um, uh, reimagining. Um, and there, I believe, has had some success with that. Regarding sleep, which is more of my specialty, um, there there's an interesting controversy between people who feel that if you prevent somebody from sleeping on the night following the trauma, you might prevent the consolidation of the memory of the trauma and make it make it less likely to intrude. And on the other hand, sleep disturbance is over the early aftermath of a trauma is clearly something that can make it more likely that that one would go on to develop PTSD. We know that, but as far as the immediate night, you know, the single night following a trauma, there is speculation that sleep depriving people might reduce the consolidation of that memory. Hmm. 
and there have been a couple experiments that have tested that um, using uh, something called an analog trauma. Um, and one group in, in uh, England, I believe, um, what they did was they show people a very disturbing movie or clips of very disturbing clips of movies, the kind of thing that would likely intrude on your memory um, in the days following seeing it. And half, half of the folks, they then kept awake for that night and the other half were allowed to sleep. And then they kept a diary of intrusive recalls of, the, of that movie across the next week or so. Um, and they, in fact, found fewer um, intrusions when they sleep deprived people than when they allowed them to mm. sleep normally. So another group replicated that and they found exactly the opposite. <laughs> that right. The people who, who were sleep deprived, um, did worse. They had more intrusions. So, you know, this is the sort of thing that, that indicates how young a particular field is and it will take some time, um, uh, before, really definitive um, yeah. um, practices come out of this. Well, what about when, um, you know, like Michael Jackson, for instance, he took, I guess, propofol or whatever it was to knock himself out so he could sleep because I guess he was very troubled for some reason. People do that in all kinds of ways. You know, they take sleeping pills, whatever. Does that help if you can force the sleep at least to be, you know, untroubled by these, by a trauma, does that help at all? Is there a way to do that safely and medically, or is that not a remedy for uh, for the, for trauma? Well, that that I think is you know really more the 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 um, realm for the psychiatrist or the the sleep doctor to to uh, give an opinion on. But you know, in from what I have um, experienced and and seen, the that's sort of a circumstance where you might where it might be a good idea to help somebody sleep with a, you know, mild sleeping pill, uh, one of the Z drugs like, like Ambien. Um, whereas to treat chronic insomnia, um, sleeping pills are oftentimes counterproductive. So it, it's, it's, um, a kind sort of approach to give people a relief if, if they're being kept awake, because they're so disturbed by something that had recently happened. Um, and a sleeping pill would certainly um, not be the wrong thing to do under that circumstance. Mm. However, if they then became dependent on those um, over the long term, that becomes a real problem. And so for sleep problems like insomnia, really the gold standard is something called cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for insomnia or CBTI, um, which is a behavioral way to address um, insomnia and really leads to the person learning how to um, um, overcome the sleep preventing um, behaviors and and beliefs and thoughts and leads to much more lasting um, treatment than sleeping pills, which tend to um, well, sometimes they even cause rebound insomnia mm. uh, when a person stops taking them, mm. but they certainly don't um, learn how to cope with their sleeplessness if they're taking drugs 
in order to to do that, whereas the more psychologically based interventions will um, help them to learn that. And there's a whole variety of, of techniques that can be used. Um, and it's a brief, brief sort of intervention. Um, it's not like going into psychoanalysis or anything like that. It's a, it's a brief intervention, but it's been shown to be very effective, even, even with people whose insomnia is part of their depression or an anxiety disorder. Um, that's for the long term. But in the short term, if somebody is, is, you know, lying awake, uh, ruminating about something horrible, it, it really isn't um, kind not to give them some relief from that. Right. Yeah. So what's, what's, what's the end goal for you? What would you love to see happen with your research? Well, oh, I, the, the one thing I didn't mention was that um, we are looking into the possibility of using sleep as a way to strengthen extinction memory. Um, in other words, to strengthen that therapeutic inhibitory memory that what, what was once fearful is no longer fearful. Um, and so we've done a couple experiments. In one, we had uh, people um, who were highly spider phobic. They, they um, scored very high on an inventory that assesses spider phobia. And um, we had them go through a simulated exposure therapy using uh, videos from YouTube of uh, close-ups of spiders doing doing their thing. And um, we showed it to them over and over again. And they, um, as, as is the case with, with any sort of repeated presentation of something, even if it's initially very aversive, the reactivity goes down, the physiological reactivity goes down, skin conductance, heart rate, um, facial musculature all uh, begin to um, return to baseline and also their subjective experience. They, they rate it as less upsetting. And that yeah. is thought to be the acquisition of extinction learning. And there's also habituation that goes on in that process. And then we allowed some of them to sleep and some of them who were trained in the morning remained awake all day. And then we tested them with the, both with the spider that they had originally been um, um, exposed to, and then with a novel spider to see how well their learning generalized. And indeed, sleep seemed to uh, result in less return of fear um, and more generalization of the um, extinction. In other words, they were less fearful both of the spider that they had seen the previous day in that simulated exposure and also the new spider. So they generalized their learning. Okay. Um, and one of the things that, that we also did in that group, um, which turns out to be a, a fairly important factor, is that we also tested a group that didn't sleep. Half of them um, were tested in the morning and the other half were tested in the evening. They were ex exposed and then they waited two hours, remained awake, and then they were tested. And that was to look at circadian rhythms. Um, the the uh, brain and the body and the emotions and, and just about everything physiological and possibly psychological has circadian rhythms um, that cause it to be expressed different at different times in the 
the internal circadian clock. Um, and as it turned out, um, that didn't show the same effect. So we were able to rule out the um, possibility that people who had slept um, were less fearful simply because they were being tested in the morning as opposed to being tested in the evening. Hmm. Um, later on with a different kind of experiment, we did, we were able to show that people um, when they are tested in the morning, this is with a, not with a exposure therapy type model, but with an experimental lab model with those shocks, we were able to show that people did better in the morning. Um, and there are some hormones that, that actually have peaks in the morning, and we think that that's part of the story. Okay. Um, but that actually some people have been picking up on that um, in terms of scheduling psychotherapy for the morning when mm. um, presumably a person is better able to learn and retain extinction learning. Um, well, a lot of people say they're fresher in the morning mentally. And, you know, throughout the day, there's tugs at your willpower. There's, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Now, you know, I guess not only at night do we get tired, but I'm sure we get mentally tired unless yep. you have like a super yep. boring day. Yep. There's, uh, and there, there are a, a couple processes that go on. One, one is something called um, sleep pressure, which is a, a buildup of, of actually a buildup of chemicals in the brain that um, promote sleep and they become more concentrated the longer one is awake. Um, mm. And that is then, in a sense, slept off during the night um, to remove the sleep pressure. And so that is in the morning, uh, one is not, doesn't have that buildup of sleep pressure, which presumably also causes some dullness or, or inattention, uh, that kind of thing. Um, that coexists with the circadian rhythm, which um, is independent of that. You can put people in these um, artificial environments and you can see that the sleep pressure and the circadian rhythm actually are not the same thing. They dissociate from one another and they can be manipulated individually. So there's both the, the um, sleeping off of the previous day's sleep pressure that occurs during the night and presumably makes a person sharper and stronger and better able to learn in the morning. And also the circadian rhythm, which may have its own reason for um, making a person sharper or better able to learn in the morning. Okay. Well, very interesting. So any breakthroughs that uh, you feel like you're on the cusp of? And I, I have to say no, and that's because this really is a very young field. Um, we certainly are trying to see if some of these sleep interventions might help. Uh, another study we did was looking at people with social phobia, um, and they were actually undergoing exposure therapy for social phobia, mm. and um, that that involves being in a small group of people and, and giving public speeches, so to speak, and, and um, seeing themselves on videotape and that kind of thing. And after those exposure treatments, we gave some people the opportunity to nap and other people um, 
stayed awake and watched a, a sort of boring video. Yeah. And we, we, our hypothesis was that the people who had napped, that would strengthen. In other words, sleep strengthens, helps to consolidate memory, and that that would help to consolidate the extinction learning that they were undergoing in the course of exposure therapy. Right. And we didn't see any sort of clinical effect of that, but they didn't, um, the ones who, who napped didn't do any better um, hmm. on the clinical assessments. There was some indication that they were less physiologically reactive to um, a social challenge. We also had a social challenge that we presented them with before and after treatment. And they, they had um, a tendency to be less reactive to that physiologically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in terms of breakthroughs, I think those come after studies are replicated a number of times, um, particularly in the field of, of psychology and psychiatry, it's very important that things be replicated and substantiated. And because it's so easy, particularly if the sample size is small, to get a positive result. Right, that's that true. Is, is due to chance. So it, in theory, the, the, using sleep as an enhancer of um, extinction learning following exposure therapy is a, is a very um, viable idea. Right. Yeah. In theory, it should work. But it may only work in the, in the negative, you know, to uh, don't sleep after a traumatic experience to avoid consolidation. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, sleep after studying may not be uh, something that works to consolidate the memory. Yeah. And well, sleep after studying might be, um, there are lots of people looking at that. And, uh, you know, you might want to talk sometime to some of the people doing sleep and memory research, uh, like Robert Stickgold or um, okay. um, Ken Paller. Um, there, there are people doing very exciting stuff with sleep and memory, not related to anxiety disorders or necessarily to psychiatry, but just pure science, um, mm. looking at how does sleep um, interact with memory systems. And it's done both in humans and in uh, rat models where you can actually stick electrodes down into the brain and see what's happening in different places. And that's a very active field of investigation. Um, people are discovering some very interesting stuff. And down the line, I'm sure all of this will have a lot of uh, application in uh, medicine and psychology, you know, certainly circadian rhythms have had a lot of application in uh, medicine and psychology, uh, or medicine in particular. Um, but in terms of using sleep in specific ways to intervene in treating anxiety or treating post-traumatic stress, the field is in its infancy and um, things need to be replicated and before they're sort of prescribed or, or advocated, um, you know, large sample clinical placebo controlled randomized trials or there's no substitute for that in terms of uh, treatment. Okay. All right. Well, very good. We're, you know, we're out of time, but um, what's the best way that people can learn more so they can consolidate their memory of this podcast and, and learn from us? Oh, well, uh, let's see. There are um, a number of books. There, um, 
There are lots of books on insomnia. Um, you just need to Google that in, in Amazon. You'll find a large number. Um, the National Sleep Foundation has a lot of pu really good public education material, as does the American Academy. Uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine um, and the Sleep Research Society. So Googling any of those uh, websites, uh, National Sleep Foundation, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, um, and Sleep Research Society will, will contact you with a whole wealth of, of information. Um, there are some books recently coming out or has have recently come out about sleep um, and by people who who do sleep research sleep science but who have gone on to to write stuff for the general public and many of those are very good books there's there's okay. by Matthew Matthew Walker recently he's a very prominent you've been listening to the secrets of attorney Berkeley. marketing there's podcast from speaking at Boston Call University 8594 um, or email to mind rj at speakeasymarketinginc.com um, and then there's there's wikipedia and there's youtube there and is post a review. out there on sleep particularly things like sleep and memory and um, right. sleep apnea sleep disorders um it, it doesn't take much poking around before you come across a lot of interesting stuff. Um, the one caution I would have is, is for um, some of these um, um, kind of uh, miraculous cures for this and that or um, wearables that can detect every last thing about sleep. Uh, the wearables, of course, are getting better and better all the time, and some of them really are remarkably good, but yeah. there's also a, a tremendous amount of hype. Um, Okay. And so that that's my caveat. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh it's super interesting what you're doing. So thanks thanks for being here. You're quite welcome. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age forty, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, but we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.